0: Welcome to In the Booth, a Frederick News Post podcast exploring the 2016 races to represent Frederick County. This has been an election year like no other, both around the county and around the country. Here, we'll explore issues important to Frederick County voters, from third-party candidates to overcrowded roads and classrooms to presidential politics. I'm Jeremy Bauerwolf here with my co-host, Danielle Gaines. Hello. And we are In the Booth. Gladial Furniture is the only place you need to visit. Save big by taking half off all leather furniture store-wide. And this month, you can also take advantage of 24 months zero-percent financing. Stop by and visit one of our expert design consultants and get luxury for less. 2016
1: has seen the two least-liked candidates in American history rise to the top of the Republican and Democratic tickets. At the same time, the party's platforms were each pulled further to the right and left by party diehards leaving some voters in the cold, which begs the question, could 2016 be the year of the third party? Polling shows that Libertarian Party candidate, former Republican governor of New Mexico Gary Johnson, is drawing votes from both major parties. Could third party candidates bring a greater dimension to presidential debates? Do third parties appeal to a certain demographic? We sat down with Newmarket resident Walter Olson, who's also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington, to address some of these questions a member of the State Commission on Congressional Redistricting, also talked with us about elections reform. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, uh, I have been a Frederick area resident for only about six years. Uh, I have spent my life in the think tank business, writing books about the law, broadly speaking, uh, uh, and More recently, a lot about politics in American government. I'm with the Cato Institute uh, think tank, libertarian think tank in Washington, DC. Before that, I was with the Manhattan Institute for 25 years in New York City. And part of my claim to fame, if it's such, is that I have, so far as anyone knows, the oldest running blog about law in the world Mm overlawyered.com and it is a mix of lighter stories about all of the ways people abuse and get away with things in the law. I never run out of material on that and more serious analysis as well.
1: Mm -hmm. And are you a libertarian?
2: I would say I'm a libertarian yeah I should mention that I'm not a lawyer, which is what people always assume.
1: Okay. <laughs> and are you registered as a Libertarian in Maryland?
2: Um, no, I'm a small-L Libertarian, and okay. I'm registered as a Republican, and I have uh, been an active Republican on behalf of uh, various candidates that I liked.
1: Okay, thanks.
0: Well, we wanted to talk a little bit about the Libertarian Party and the candidacy. So Governor Johnson didn't get to make the debate stage. Do you think he could have brought something different than the two major party candidates? he would certainly have brought something different. And I think there was a a great regret, even
2: among people who were not necessarily going to vote for Gary Johnson, that his voice was not on there because it would have been a sharply contrasting voice raising questions that might have been uncomfortable for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Could you give a couple examples? Well, for example, It's no secret that those two candidates are among the least popular that their parties have nominated in many, many years. And in a way, that provides them with a curious strength in that, ask people why they are voting for him, and often it's because they don't want her in. Ask them why they're voting for her, uh, they don't want him in. And there is, I'm not going to say mutually assured scandal, but uh, the fact is that both of them have been uh, hit with a lot of worries about, Uh, their past records. Now, Gary Johnson, uh, although he's different in a lot of different ways, one of them is that uh, he is a two-term governor from New Mexico. um, And I can't name a scandal that anyone has accused him of because apparently he didn't have any that were important enough. And uh, so only when you are in that position can you ask certain pointed questions without it immediately rebounding on you.
1: Do you think it would have also changed the discussion on policies?
2: Oh, for sure. Because the Libertarian Party is not simply organized in order to find a scandal-free person and run them. It is organized to run a set of ideas about individual liberty. And uh, ordinarily, we think we understand where the Republican and Democratic parties fit uh, on some of these questions of individual liberty. The cliche is that Republicans are more uh, gung-ho for economic liberty and Democrats more for personal liberty and things have gotten very scrambled this year it's not clear that Donald Trump uh, is um, uh, running on a basis of economic liberty um, and there are complaints that Hillary Clinton who has been identified with government surveillance and things is, may not be uh, as friendly as many Democrats on the personal liberty front so, you have an opportunity here for those traditional libertarian ideas, and although Gary Johnson is a different candidate, he is enough of a libertarian that he would have been sure to raise those issues. Uh, you know, Donald Trump, why, unlike all of the previous Republican candidates, uh, don't you have any proposals for shrinking the size of government? Uh, or Hillary Clinton, why is it that you are worse on free speech issues than Barack Obama was? I mean, th- these are sample questions. He would have phrased it differently, but Libertarians have this crossover kind of appeal, and one of the interesting results from poll after poll this year has been that uh, when they try to figure out where Gary Johnson's vote is coming from, uh, mm-hmm. it has tended to be about evenly drawn from Hillary Clinton and uh, uh, Donald Trump. Now, that's not true of Jill Stein, the other. A third-party candidate, uh, Green. Most polls indicate that virtually all of her vote, uh, if it had to choose between the two major parties, would be going for Hillary Clinton. But with Gary Johnson, you've got this mix. Uh, he was a Republican governor and uh, considered one of the more financially conservative ones. He vetoed, I think, 700 bills, a record of any uh, governor at the time. He. Uh, <coughs> is running on concepts like balanced budget and uh, serious cuts in domestic spending, which you would identify with a Republican point of view. At the same time, his most recent job before he ran was head of, uh, people can hardly believe this, head of a uh, cannabis edibles company. Uh, he, mm. he, okay. After having been the nation's most prominent elected advocate for marijuana legalization, he, I guess, practiced what he preached. Uh, having, mm-hmm. having been a, a successful businessman employing thousands of people in construction and engineering type businesses, uh, someone offered him a job. Uh, running this uh, company out, out west where, where the, the, such things are legal. Mm-hmm. And um, and he took it, and he was doing that. So, so you can see where it, and there are parts of it that appeal to both parties, and there are also parts that make both parties a little uncomfortable. They're just not sure they want to go there.
1: Mm-hmm. So on your Facebook pages, you have a lot of active political discussions, (laughs) and I read a lot of them. And one of the topics that comes up somewhat frequently is this idea that if you vote for a third party candidate, maybe especially in a year like this where some polls show, well, until like a week ago, they showed that the race was pretty close. Um, there's this kind of regular drumbeat argument that voting for a third party is a throwaway vote. Uh, What do you think about that, and how do you respond to that?
2: It is exactly what you hear, and it weighs more heavily in close races where uh, it's really possible that either candidate could get in if you're in a close state like our friends in Virginia, uh, who might be in a state that actually decides a close race. Now we have—I like to call it—the luxury of living in Maryland, a state very unlikely to decide any presidential elections anytime. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the next we had a moment in the sun with the primary, and we're done yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> um, any election in which it's close between the Democratic and Republican candidate for president is probably a Republican blowout uh, nationally, but. So that's part of the answer. Part of the answer is that most people are either voting in elections or voting in states where their vote will not actually uh Uh, even have a a one-in-a-million chance of tipping the balance and where they therefore, I would say, could be free to send a message, free to make a statement, free to lodge a protest. And if you look at it that way, votes for third-party candidates actually count more heavily because uh, you can double the Green vote, let's say, if you uh, push Jill Stein from uh, what she ran four years ago Uh, Now, uh, with the Libertarian Party, you could actually get it secure ballot status uh, in your state or uh, at above 5%, which is certainly very possible because most recent polls have been well above that for Gary Johnson. Uh, You get federal matching funds. Now, there are questions whether Libertarians should actually want federal matching funds since they're the (laughs) big budget cutters. (laughs) But but even so, you make a difference when you cast a vote for one of these smaller principled parties because it it can – hard to interpret a vote for one of the major parties. Is it for this policy or that, that you, that you were convinced to vote Democratic or Republican? Uh, was it for fear of the one thing or fear of the other? But if you vote for one of the smaller parties, uh, it's much more clearly registering. Oh, so there's a lot of people who think that. Um, and Small parties send a message to the major parties. You know, Political scientists that who look at this say that there are two main types of, of third party campaign. One of them is the personality type. Teddy Roosevelt creates the Bull Moose Party or mm-hmm. uh, H. Ross Perot runs and he needs a party to run on. And, and that's pretty well understood. And usually after that person stops running uh, the party withers and dies. And then there are the parties that are uh, set up to push an idea. The uh, Socialist Party in the days of Eugene V. Debs Um, never got anywhere close to winning for president, and yet, as has often been told, it saw much of its platform adopted by the major parties. The Prohibition Party, an even clearer example of a party that never tended to win elections, but by being there, it reminded people of its issues first on the way up and then on the way down. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it it got its issue adopted as a national constitutional amendment, and then, of course, it was totally uh, rejected uh, some years later. So, In that sense, when the libertarian vote goes up from 1% to 8%, uh, one of the possible reactions is that both Democrats and Republicans say, those are votes we should be getting or might be getting if we present our message in a way that uh, makes it more appealing to uh, the people who were voting for
0: Gary Johnson. Mm -hmm. So you've seen people making more of those statements in Maryland, voting more third-party?
2: Well, it's not—
0: so specific to Maryland
2: as that nationally, Gary Johnson's vote, and he ran four years ago, and he got 1% then, which classic third party showing when there was not enormous discontent with the main parties, Mm -hmm. when there was not the sense of ideological uh, continents moving that there have been this year, where there's a sense that the parties may be realigning towards some completely new format. There was not that sense four years ago. It was a much more conventional, um, what do you think of Barack Obama after four years? Uh, Mitt Romney was a very familiar Republican, uh, very liked and respected by typical Republican voters. And so you got that 1% of people who were so libertarian that even with uh, some pretty conventional and popular candidates, uh, they still insisted on sending that message. Now all of a sudden you see polls in which uh, these days Gary Johnson is getting often 6 or 8% of the uh, vote. A few weeks ago he scored as much as 11 12, 13 percent, and uh, that's nationwide. Maryland uh, tends to be less enthusiastic for Johnson than the average state, lagging behind. It peaked at 9 percent in one of the polls, maybe Baltimore Sun, um, Turn to either the states out west, Rocky Mountain states, Alaska, where he has often been in the high teens, uh, even 24 percent in one New Mexico poll where mm-hmm. he's from, uh, and also New Hampshire, some of the other northeastern states, and you find much more enthusiasm. So uh, Part of it is that those states are a little more uh, in line with the libertarian message. They have, you know, New Hampshire has license plates, live free or die. Mar- Maryland mm-hmm. is not going to have that license plate. Let's face it. <laughs> 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 yeah. But um, so yeah, you've got a more receptive voting population in many of those states. Uh, Gary Johnson, f- for a hobby, climbs mountains. Uh, you know it. it I, I can't believe that it's a coincidence that all of his top
0: 15 states or so are mountainous.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> what do you think of the Chicago Tribune's endorsement of Johnson? One of the most
2: fascinating developments of this season for the Libertarians has been that they are doing so much better in uh, respectable newspaper endorsements than the Republican candidate. Now, mm-hmm. they have been endorsed not not just by the Chicago Tribune, but also by the Detroit News, by the Richmond Times Dispatch, uh, by the Manchester Union leader, the biggest newspaper in New Hampshire, and uh, by a couple of others as well. And this is unheard of as a libertarian advance. It's also unheard of as a Republican loss because uh, many of those papers uh, have— Uh, essentially been endorsing Republicans for 100 years or more. Uh, A bunch of other newspapers like the ones in Dallas and Columbus have uh, endorsed Hillary Clinton after a century of Republican endorsements. But part of this is clearly that Donald Trump is a different candidate. But part of it is also that Gary Johnson and Bill World, his running mate, former governor of Massachusetts, uh, despite the well-known setbacks that they've had, and they've had Microphone flubs. Johnson has had. The world never seems to have a microphone flub. Mm -hmm. But uh, despite those setbacks, uh, they just bring a little more to the table as far as being credible candidates. They are uh, two-term governors in both cases whose— Administrations were widely respected, and they also have this very moderate manner. Now, if you've met a lot of libertarians, you know that they don't all have moderate, reasonable manners. Sometimes they're not the people that you would introduce <laughs> to your parents as being the most middle-of-the-road, uh, you know, easy for uh, the parents to understand the people. And yet, here you have re- representing that party that is kind of known for being a little bit off or odd uh, with some of the candidates that it has run in the past. Uh, you have. These button-down guys who have clearly been, um, uh, you know, focused on the details of government in uh, their political careers and in their other careers, because both have been successful in business and law. What world, uh, has this sparkling resume of having run the, the criminal division of the justice department under reagan and mm-hmm. a bunch of other things um, you have it, it, for once libertarians that you can bring home to mama and uh, <laughs> that that makes a difference with newspaper <laughs> endorsements. i think uh-huh.
1: um whichever candidate is elected or however we end up deciding a candidate if there's a tie <laughs> um or failure to reach 270 but what whichever candidate is elected in this election will face a poisonous atmosphere in Washington. Um, do you think that you'll see candidates moving, pivoting to the eventual winner, pivoting to some of these libertarian points of view or a Green Party point of view or, you know, something that's just not exactly Democrat or exactly Republican once they face that atmosphere?
2: It's so hard to know. And it's not mostly in the hands of the Libertarian or Green Party candidates to get that to happen. It's in Mm -hmm. the hands of whoever wins. And if we are indeed at a moment of political realignment in which uh, we are left with a different Republican Party than what we have known, um, and probably, therefore, a different Democratic, because it's unlikely that only the one will change without the other also changing. Um, At that point, uh, both parties face incentives of how do we pick up um, people who are suddenly— rethinking their political alignment, because it's, it's exactly those times that uh, many people who would never have considered breaking with the party that they grew up with or the party they've always voted for begin thinking about it. And mm-hmm. it's at that point that uh, you know Trump um, clearly has thought of reaching out for some of the Democratic base on issues of um, economic discontent and uh, why can't um, particularly the uh, states between the coasts, get any more economic success than they have had in recent years, Um, Democrats may at the same time be thinking of, well, if the Republicans are not going to support free trade and not going to support a lot of the issues that um, business has traditionally been interested in, uh, why can't we go in and and scoop out more of the Republican profile, uh, well-educated, affluent, suburban voters? So I think they're thinking of doing those Um, Whoever wins will be in a position of having their formula worked this time and maybe extend it.
0: What do you think the best way is for third parties to kind of change or break with the two-party system? I mean, what do you start with? You know, down ballots? You know, do you encourage lawmakers with kind of similar ideals to switch?
2: I don't think there is an answer that is very reliable or else they would have been doing it. And people (laughs) Mm -hmm. advise the libertarians, uh, well, you should run more – Uh, candidates for lesser offices, which they've been doing. They've done that a lot, actually. Uh, Without electing much of anybody, uh, certainly in the less friendly states like Maryland, but even in the states where libertarianism is uh, something of a uh, mainstream phenomenon, uh, the incentives of the two-party system are very, very strong. The -the so-called first-past-the-post ballot rule in which uh, the Voters at the last minute, exactly as, as you said in the leading off, uh, Danielle, the, um, uh, people don't want to uh, vote for the number three candidate if they could be affecting the race between the number one and two. And Now, we do not have, unlike some other countries, proportional representation, which brings its own problems. We don't have the Australian ballot, which brings its own problems, although man has actually got a proposition on the ballot for transferable voting the Australian system, uh, which could change a lot if it is adopted by mm-hmm. by some state. But what we're left with, by and large, is this first-past-the-post system in which um, everything is set up against the third party. From ballot access, petitioning to get on the ballot, 50 different processes, sometimes fairly easy, other times so onerous that you have to have hundreds of volunteers and spend tens of thousands of dollars. And uh, for the Libertarian Party, uh, and I think for the Greens and others, uh, this ballot access problem in an ordinary year eats up most of their volunteer energy. Not much is left to campaign with because the get, getting on and staying on the ballot is so hard. But that's just the beginning. We saw in the debates this year, um, at, I think it's a lovely example of the difference between bipartisanship and nonpartisanship because the Commission mm-hmm. on Presidential Debates is set up as a bipartisan entity. Uh, And everyone thought that was OK if they were thinking as a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, but as you find in the redistricting area, where some states have nonpartisan redistricting and other states have bipartisan redistricting, and the states that have bipartisan redistricting often have the Republicans and Democrats retire into a little room where they carve things up and we'll protect our guys and you protect your guys. Um, that's not the nonpartisan way. You know, the nonpartisan mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. ought to be preventing either party from um, you know, g- grabbing half of the terrain for itself. And so the debates we've seen um, are operating in a way that benefits the two major parties rather than necessarily the the voters' interest in what they may like to hear. And it's that way through a lot of the rest of election law as well. The the things that people spend money on, whether it be um, lawyering a campaign, which is getting more and more expensive, or whether it's uh, sending poll watchers to the polls, uh, some of it by design and some of it just by the nature of economies of scale, Um, You can afford to do it if you've got 40 percent of the voters on your side. If you've got 5 percent of the voters on your side, uh, you are
0: uh, in over your head. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think that the third parties appeal to particular sections of the population, you know, millennials, young people, minorities? (sighs) This has been—
2: Uh, one of the striking features this year is that the Gary Johnson vote is extremely skewed by age. Uh, Now we saw that with Bernie Sanders and so uh, Mm -hmm. we're familiar with the phenomena of someone who polls much, much better with under 30s than with over 50s. And Gary Johnson is, although ideologically very different from Sanders and not really seemingly mostly drawing the same people, but he's got that same age profile where the over 65s Um, would be relegating him to being uh, a true minor party candidate with 3% of the vote or less. And uh, at the same time, uh, during his best weeks, he has been in contention to move into second place among uh, uh, the youngest voters. If you turn to uh, particular subsets, like active military, uh, sometimes he is in second. uh, Mm. Sometimes he's even in first. Uh, With Navy and Air Force uh, particularly, he has been... um, performing very, very strongly. So it's something that we um, might possibly even see in Maryland if you break down the, the local vote to places where there is a high Navy and Air Force presence. And so you have, um, whether it be something about the personalities or something about the message that, uh, in this case, uh, is having a very... Uh, lopsided or asymmetrical appeal. Uh, that's not true necessarily of all third-party candidates. I don't think it's particularly true of the Greens, for example, who are getting a fair number of older voters as well as younger, who are getting uh, uh, a less dramatic geographical uh, shift than, than the the Gary Johnson uh, 4% in Mississippi and 24% in New Mexico, where uh, it, it's very clear that something about... Uh, the, um, the Rocky Mountain West other, other than just familiarity from his being from
0: there, is um, is creates voters that are drawn to him. Mm-hmm. Do you know what particular part of Johnson's message might resonate with young voters? I think that's a fascinating question that has not been very well answered. And
2: let me... Reject the idea that it's the marijuana. I, I don't think there's evidence from a bunch of different races that people will cast a presidential vote uh, Either way based on views on marijuana. Maybe some will reject him for that. Very few will make that the reason to vote for someone uh, Part of his message that I do think is important this year is libertarians believe in more skepticism toward overseas military involvement not necessarily against it and gary has said he's not an isolationist and he's not even not a pacifist and he's not anything of those, th- those sorts he believes in defending our allies under the terms of the, th- the alliances he believes that uh, there will sometimes be overseas military actions which if i'm getting his three-part test correct are clearly in the u.s national interest uh, have a clear definition of what the mission is that our people are being put in harm's way for, and also have a clear definition of how the mission will end, what constitutes success, failure, or some other way of ending Mm -hmm. the mission. And in his critique of the last couple of presidents of both parties for not uh, sticking to that um, sort of screening method for uh, winnowing down the number of appropriate military interventions, and as a result, we wind up with a lot of not very successful and not very easy-to-end military interventions. Um, You know, it was certainly a critique of the George W. Bush administration. Um, It can also be leveled as a critique of um, the Hillary Clinton uh, State Department and uh, Barack Obama uh, uh, administration, and although certain... On some days, Donald Trump has sounded as if he was making a critique of this, this, this sort. On other days, it sounds as if Trump is coming from a completely different direction. You know, let's take their oil. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's uh, bomb them into the Stone Age. Uh, you know, the, Trump can sound like this uh, before certain audiences and in certain moods. But at other times, uh, you know, let's commit war crimes. I, I, I'm editorializing I'm mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. But these are things that Gary Johnson would never, ever say. He would never say, um, that, you know, it—, it if I give an un, uh, illegal order to the military, I expect them to obey it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so so Johnson is. Um, I I myself suspect that that uh, is uh, the strongest issue that Johnson has going for him this year. Not by no means the only one, because the. Um, thrifty financial appeal and being the only one who is serious about the federal deficit Mm -hmm. uh, is certainly uh, helping him get those Midwestern Republican newspapers. It's it's not the foreign policy that is getting him to places like the Chicago Tribune. But but as far as why he's doing so well with the Young vote, uh, you know, even the fiscal stuff may be helping there because—
1: well, I mean, millennials have grown up in a time of war and in a time of recession.
2: Well, and also in a time where you look forward to whether a government— uh, uh, Retirement programs can keep their promises, and most people analyzing the numbers will say, well, yeah, they can keep their promises long enough for the people who are currently over 65 Mm to have their promises kept, (laughs) and they probably can't keep their promises uh, that they're making to people under 30. And in a way, uh, Gary's message is actually well-tuned for that. Uh, and I think he gets some traction when he says that in their different ways, uh, both the Democrat and Republicans are in some denial about the sustainability of the promises that have been made uh, on those big government uh, uh, entitlement programs.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to circle back to something you were talking about a minute ago, which was about um, ballot access. There mm-hmm. are, are a lot of different ideas for in, that could wind up increasing third-party um, involvement in our political system, so multi-member congressional or legislative districts or runoff balloting or campaign spending limits. Um, wh- you know, what do you think about some of those proposals? Do you think that some of them are better than others?
2: Of the ones you mentioned, I can't think of any that would necessarily jumpstart third parties although they would certainly change the balance of power between the two main parties Mm -hmm. Uh, the runoff primaries we know from California and Louisiana that when you have the someone called the jungle primary the top two placers as is going on with the California Senate seat right now Mm -hmm. where two Democrats with high vote uh, getters and are now running against each other Um, that definitely changes the behavior of the two major parties it has not created an opening for a third party Mm -hmm. to uh, get in with public financing You know, my own guess is that public financing uh, locks the door even tighter against third parties for a couple of reasons. I think that uh, it tends to limit the amount that is spent on political debate generally, whereas third parties um, in some cases will need a big financial jolt to, to get the name recognition that the Democrats and Republicans inherit to begin with. Um, I think that Larry Hogan's win with public financing is causing a lot of people to go back to the uh, civics books and figure out exactly what public financing may do because it was not predicted to help a Republican beat a Democrat uh, uh, under those circumstances. But it's those issues will um, continue to be uh, debated and both in the courts and in the legislatures but uh, One of the conditions of our system is simply that the decisions will mostly be made by people who don't have the interest of third parties at heart. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) they're not not likely to steer us into some rules that are great for third parties.
1: And I wanted to ask you one more thing before we go. You um, served on Governor Hogan's redistricting commission. And... You know, thus far, uh, nothing has happened. Uh, Where do you think things are with that? Do you think we could give it another push next year? Uh, Well,
2: don't say nothing has happened because, of course, a lot has happened in people's minds. And one thing they've seen was that despite the uh, creation of a proposal, and I'm very proud of what the commission did, we had— a uh, very diverse and well-qualified panel and uh, bringing many different points of view about what good redistricting would mean. And we kept together, except for the two panel members appointed by the legislative majority, we kept together everyone else to support a plan that, so far as I know, has been praised by every newspaper to write about it in the state of Maryland. And so part of it is that we could, um, in being unable even to get a floor vote, from the majority and being unable to get even um, uh, a counterplan that would be put up as, you know, amendments and, you know, let's vote on ours versus yours, um, that was in itself a message that uh, uh, I think was uncomfortable for many people in the majority party because we know that a lot of Democratic voters and activists want a fairer system. We know that partly because candidates like Heather Meiser and Peter Franchot have run on that basis saying that they were running against the party establishment in Annapolis and often done very well with that sharp critique of them. Uh, We know that the Democratic members in Annapolis Uh, from places like Montgomery County hear back constantly from their own constituents, their loyal Democratic constituents saying, this is ridiculous. We now have the worst state in the country on this. This must stop. Not in our name. Not in our name. Mm -hmm. And uh, So I think that uh, we should not see it as a stalemate. We should not see it as a logjam. We should see it as something perhaps like a logjam, actually, which is that once someone comes in and knocks the right log out of there, all of a sudden you have hundreds of logs uh, uh, flowing downstream very quickly. It may take the right Democrat running in the right race to uh, rally the issue. It may take Uh, someone in the legislature to say enough is enough and we're going to get ahead of this issue so that voters associate us with reform. Um, Or it might take at some point Republicans electing more people to Annapolis because that's another thing that could happen if Republicans build up their representation a little bit uh, to be able to sustain a veto by Governor Hogan uh, then the Democrats do not feel that they have all the cards in their hand and much better chance that they will come to the negotiating table. So, yeah, I'm being a little bit partisan about this. Uh, but at the same time, I've talked with, with so many of my Democratic friends who essentially want the same thing that I want out of the system, uh, n- rules that are fair uh, to voters rather than fair to incumbents.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, if that happens, we'll have to bring you back and talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> <Very much. laughs> Thank you for coming today.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: In the Booth is produced by Graham Cullen, Chris Sands, Jeremy Bauerwolf, and myself. Our theme music is courtesy of FMP reporter and rocker, Kelsey Luce. If it's politics and it's Frederick, we hope you'll join us for the conversation in the booth. Before we get started, I'd like to note that this is our 12th episode of In the Booth this campaign season. Like us on iTunes or Google Play, which will help us reach as many voters as possible this election season. We hope you'll encourage your friends and family to join us here in the booth. Now, to our interview with Walter.
0: Let's